When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Happy Mum, Happy Baby, the podcast. Today's guest, well, I kind of fell in love with him a little bit back in, what, 2001, I think it was, on Shipwrecked, and he's now a life coach, but he's been a part of our lives ever since, I think, that island. It's Jeff Brazier. Hi. You have a very cool name as well. I like saying your name. Uh, well, many people sometimes say Brazier, especially if we are in, in Europe, uh, Mr. Brazier, and and I know what a Brazier is. <laughs> I don't like Does the it association. Does it make you chuckle a little bit? Or? Um, no, I find it annoying. Okay. Actually, uh, it's not even, it's a name that was adopted, to be fair. It's, it's, I could be a Smith, I could be a Stapleton, I could be a yeah. Faldo, but I, I am a Brazier. And, yeah. and because my children are and they're comfortable with it, we'll stick as that. <laughs> Is it weird that so many people kind of our age must still say to you, shipwrecked? Because I was talking about it literally a few weeks ago because I think we were watching a different programme. It's coming back, isn't it? Yes, exactly. So exciting because it was the most incredible show to do and to watch. I enjoyed watching it equally as much as I did doing it. But my friend was on the second series right. who I played football with and he came home just, he was like a different person to be honest, but all in the, the most positive of ways. Yeah. And he just kept saying about how he felt so sort of enlightened by the fact that he'd spent so much time in such a beautiful place without, you know, the things that are not necessarily good for us that mm. we obsess over, like what car we have and how much money we're earning and all those silly things that just sort of drift away when your sole task every day is to feed yourself and to survive. So, yeah, to do it was incredible. And I was very young, but I learned so, so much. And it's still probably the best experience of my life so far. Really? Mm. Let's talk about your childhood first. I always find it really interesting to see what people were like, what their Why we're messed up. Yeah, yeah. Mm. What was it about our childhood (laughs) that messed us up so badly? Mm. (laughs) What was your childhood like? Ah, it's interesting. So uh, my mum was 15 when she had me and uh, I think she sort of had a a good go of it. My biological father wasn't particularly interested and neither were his parents. I think they had a lot of difficulties going on sort of therein. So to... To take on a child where he obviously wasn't with my mum at the time, um, that was probably a little bit too much. I know it's something that they regret now because I'm I'm close to the family. But yeah, so after a couple of years of my mum trying her best, she took a view that it would be best for me to be fostered. So I went into foster care for probably two or three years. Oh, wow. Yeah. And actually, I remember it being a sort of an okay experience. I remember them being sort of nice people that treated me well. They're just not your parents, ultimately. Mm. So, you know, I think back to that little version of me there and not that I recollect feeling like this, but you'd be like, 
where's my mum? Yeah. You know, would you feel like that on a daily basis? It's quite sad, actually. I think that a lot of the resilience that I've probably got now has probably come from having to go through that period of time where where maybe you're wondering, when's my mum going to come and get me? Did you have one foster family or did you go around a bit? Just the one. Okay. So it was just the one foster family. But yeah, no, I have some nice memories of that time. My mum did come and get me and I, I actually remember it vividly. She rocked up at the door with bright blonde sort of bleached hair and she was wearing black and she was smiling. She was very young, obviously. And uh, and off we went. And obviously the reason for her coming back, I think, was because she'd found a, a partner and felt that she was sort of stable enough in order to be able to provide me with what I needed. Yeah. So unfortunately, yes, yeah, she married my stepdad. And, and whilst I'll always say my stepdad, just for balance, like he did teach me some some really important lessons as I grew up and things that have have really helped me, I think. Like his work ethic was incredible. He's an absolute grafter and, and I think I've taken some of that on board. Mm. Unfortunately, again, young couple, uh, his temperament wasn't great. My mum might have been the sort of person that didn't necessarily help to avoid situations and basically it was a very difficult house to live in for everybody and sometimes I guess people find it hard to know when the right time to let go is I remember my mum and and I um, running away a a few times and we'd go and be with family and stuff but he'd always come we'd always go back and it was like that repetitive cycle where everything was okay for a little while and a bit calmer yeah but you know I spent a lot of time up in my bedroom feeling a little bit sort of withdrawn knowing what was going on around me but you know obviously being powerless to sort of change anything but again, uh, take positives from sort of every but little bit really of the story. But that's really surprising to hear that that was your childhood because of the person that you are. And like even shipwreck days and everything, you come across as this happy-go-lucky, you are a very positive man and very likeable and friendly. So to think of you as a child in that situation, it's quite surprising. Do you know what I mean? Sure. I mean, that's to suggest that if we have a negative experience in our, in our childhood, that it creates an unhappy person. Mm. The truth is, and actually it's quite relevant that you you were about to say that just because I used to I think as a kid ask a lot of questions of the situation around me that I couldn't ask my mum I couldn't ask my stepdad I couldn't say why are you arguing Mm. you know why does that get thrown and why is there a plate hanging out of the wall in the kitchen like who threw that why for what reason so I kind of tried I had a good go at answering it myself and actually I found that I was quite good at finding some understanding of of the fact that my stepdad's family were quite unstable and there was a lot of arguing there in the background and there was divorces and there was this, that and the other. And and you start sort of putting it together and sort of being able to form a jigsaw puzzle of your own. And if you understand it, then you can almost kind of move through it, Yeah. which I think I did. But there's this sort of ageless question about, though, when you've had a, a negative upbringing in certain respects, what makes you turn left and go positive or turn right and go, I'm going to use this as an excuse to fail mm-hmm. or to to find things that are not necessarily going to be helpful to a good life. Yeah. And I can't really answer that. I'm not entirely sure why I, why I became positive. But um, to carry on the story, we ran away again when I was 12. I remember my auntie coming around in a, in a van like just before I was about to leave for school. So I hadn't been given any sort of pre-warning. And my brother had been born by which time he had cerebral palsy. He has cerebral palsy. He's seven years younger than me. So he must have been, at the time, he would have been about five. And we were sort of bundled into the van with a few black bin liners full of clothes. And off we went to Great Yarmouth. Not because we wanted a holiday. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I don't know why she chose that place. Yeah. I think we actually, we went to a women's refuge that she'd obviously So you were running away, essentially. Yeah, we were running away, which we'd done before. So I sort of knew about it. And I, 
How did I feel? I think I was probably excited because maybe this was the time that my mum finally found the strength to mm -hmm. to stay away. But it wouldn't just require her strength. It would also require some help from the authorities that really should be assisting in situations like this. So Women's Refuge, I remember being in there for a few weeks. I remember feeling quite happy at the fact that I was at the seaside, to be honest. I remember we got put in a chalet somewhere and it was right next to Pontins in Hemsby <laughs> and I was there every day. Yeah. So running away was working out pretty well for me. <laughs> okay. Well, I made loads of friends every yeah. week. There was a whole new batch of people to make friends with. You know, I do believe that little things create who you are. Mm. So I was badly bullied and I think I'm always seeking for people to like me. That's a part of my personality. Kind of at motherhood has changed that a little bit. I know that I am what I am and whatever. But you were constantly meeting new people and becoming friends with them. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I certainly wasn't socially inept. And to be honest, I'd been very withdrawn throughout the two previous years in school. Mm. I remember a teacher actually saying to me, like after class one day, and I couldn't really answer him, but he yeah. said, he said, Jeffrey, he always called me Jeffrey actually, my English teacher, um, you seem very withdrawn. Is everything okay at home? And I, I, I just didn't, I didn't answer. I didn't know what to say. Yeah, yeah, I'm all right. But, you know, it, it must have been obvious to people. I was very good at football and I was lucky because that gave me a focus and an outlet. Mm. And if it wasn't for that um, and the confidence that I must have had in my ability to play a game and a bit, you know, maybe that, that sort of sense of I'm physically fit, physically strong, you know, I think that was probably a big ingredient, again, if you're asking as to why and how did I sort of manage mm. to get through that and find a positive sort of outcome. But we got rehoused in a little village called Tiptree. So this is where everything just sort of changed. Yeah. Um, because uh, my mum was free mm -hmm. from, by my own reckoning. Um, she wasn't in that relationship anymore. It meant she could breathe. She mm. could take stock and she could work out who she was and where she was going because she still would have been uh, 30. Young. Yeah, really young. Really young, yeah. You know, that's 10 years younger than, than I'm nearly at right now. So, um, yeah, she was, she was a baby still, effectively. So... I had a lovely three-year experience at a really wonderfully, blissfully naive school full of kids that didn't know about the, yeah. the, the problems that, that you'd get in sort of London and, and surrounding areas. And I just remembered blossoming and my confidence came out and my cheekiness and, and, and my personality, basically. That's a, as it would do for a child that's yep. 13. You know, during that period, that's when you're going to find out who you are. Mm. I was just pleased to be out of that home because it was restrictive, it was worrying. Yeah. You know, there's always a fear. I was scared of my stepdad. I didn't want to ever put a foot wrong. I'd feel really under pressure when he asked me to go to the shed and get a tool because, A, I didn't know what that tool was, what it looked like. If I got the wrong one, he'd be displeased. And going back to your, your earlier point about, you know, how your childhood forms the sort of personality traits that you have, I always wanted to obviously please. Yeah. So, you know, I remember as well with, with football, he was very involved in my football, and which was really kind of him to do that, and it was our way of bonding, you know, stepdad and son, if you like. But I remember one game I was playing badly. He mm. was the manager and he felt like he needed to do something about it. And I remember being sort of told in no uncertain terms and I, and I was being held by the hair at the time that I needed to improve. Right. And the problem was is that I went and scored a hat-trick in the second half, which kind of maybe even validated, you know, his his sort of way of going about it. Saying it was kind of tough love. Yeah, tough love. Did I need it? I'm not sure. It was, you know, it's just a game and yeah. I was just a kid yeah. and I was doing pretty well. Uh, I was at a pro, I was at West Ham at the time. So if I was having an off day, I think everybody's sort of due, due one yeah. or forgiven for having one. 
But when I was in Tiptree, my mum sat me down at the table, like like we are now, and she said, would you like to meet your real nan and granddad? And I thought it was a really interesting thing to put to somebody. Mm. How old were you at this point? 13. Right, OK. So I, I instantly had this, this visual image go through my mind of where my stepdad had punched his way into a flat that we'd obviously been evicted from. And he'd cut his hand. I remember him sitting on the edge of the bath, me coming into the toilet and saying, Rob, your hand's bleeding. And I don't know whether this, this is obvious to you, but why didn't I say, Dad, your hand's bleeding? Yeah. So straight away, I'm like, wow, how have I lost sight of, of the fact yeah. that he wasn't my real yeah. dad? I thought he was my real dad. Yeah. So my question straight away was, why my real dad then? She then told me about the fact that uh, my dad, Stephen Faldo, had, um, he was a skipper at a Marchioness, which was a party boat that was effectively sort of run over by a dredger in 1989. And that was three or four years previous to, to that moment that I was speaking to my mum. And it's like, you know, you have a rush of sort of feelings, like you just check in and you're like, right, how do I feel about this? I, I've got a real dad, except that he's not alive anymore. He died. You know, can you feel grief for someone that you never met? I think you can absolutely and some feel... some of that time that you didn't even know you were missing effectively well yeah consciously but subconsciously remember i had five years of of my stepdad not existing so i I, it's 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 strange like you put things in in Mm. places that are so hard to find sometimes but uh in that moment i just remember thinking okay i can't miss what i never had it's a real shame and again i didn't consciously think this but i've never been one to feel sorry for myself because i think that if you if you are then generally that will lead you to really dwelling and hanging on to that regret and what you didn't have. But ultimately, you you don't control it and you can't have it. So that's a bad thing to play on loop, isn't Mm. it? So my attitude, even back then, really must have been really good. And it was like, right, okay, I'm not going to miss, I can't miss what I didn't have. She'd obviously alluded to the fact that there was family out there that now wanted to be in my life. So I I just felt really excited for the fact that I was going to meet some new family. Yeah. So the very next day, I had a, a nan and granddad, I had aunties, uncles, I had cousins, I had a living room literally full of people that that were my family. And I've obviously embraced them ever since. Yeah. So, so yeah, beyond that, I, I moved out when I was 16, literally straight after finishing school to go and be an apprentice at Leighton Orient Football Club. And I did two years as a YTS. I did a couple of years pro. I played out in Sweden and Finland and Iceland on my travels. Football didn't necessarily work out in the end, but but that was the foundation anyway. Mm-hmm. Those are the ingredients as to what formed me into being who I am. Yeah. Having had your child, experienced your childhood, how did that affect the sort of dad that you thought you were going to be? Did you think, oh, when I'm a dad, I'm going to be like this? Or I didn't think about it much. Didn't you? Um, too busy enjoying myself. But when it did become instantly apparent is when I met Jade and the moment she said, I'm pregnant. Yeah. And straight away, I think the first question you ask yourself as a 22, maybe 23-year-old is, do we keep it? Yeah. Okay. And then... You, you think to yourself, well, straight away, again, I had this overwhelming sort of sense of, well, of course you do, because what right have you got to be here enjoying life because your mum ignored everyone that was saying, don't, don't have that child, you're 15, you're a teenager. Yeah. It would be really hypocritical, right, for me to deny Bobby, as he's later become known, the right to live. Yeah. 
so so yeah there was for me there was no question about it from a sort of ethical moral point of view mm-hmm. so that conversation kind of went listen I completely support you and we've not been together long but these are my experiences and this is why I feel very strongly about the fact that I wouldn't be able to not have this child obviously Jade had her opinion as well but I don't think she particularly like the idea of a termination anyway yeah. some people won't like the fact that we're talking about terminations but we were very young yeah. and we were very new like we we hadn't really officially sort of categorized ourselves as boyfriend and girlfriend how long had you point. been together I, I think it was something like three months right so yeah so in that sense bobby is here all 15 years of him six foot one of him ultimately because my mum you know indirectly yeah, yeah, yeah. because my mum took that decision so what was it like becoming a dad, that moment where you met Bobby? What was that like? Uh, well, so so again, yeah, you're right to ask that because as soon as your child is born, you, you realise that there is something incredibly strong about your relationship, even though this is just a little tiny parcel of sort of human flesh and bones. And yeah, I, I, obviously all parent-child relationships are really sort of special, but... I felt like mine had an additional layer of purpose because, I mean, I wouldn't have known this at the time. Certainly, again, it's not a conscious sort of understanding, but I think subconsciously I felt like I was going to put my childhood right by giving him the best possible one that I could give to him. And I also felt really confident that for my experiences, I would know what a really good childhood was. And that's interesting because Mm. obviously I didn't necessarily experience that um, fully. But I just must have understood or, or felt that love and tranquility yeah, and yeah. some peace and calm and stability, that those things are, are what really count most. And and again, it's a shame. There's a slight irony to that because as much as that would have been my will, relationships are really difficult generally. Mm-hmm. Ours was ridiculously difficult because she was a huge strong character she was going through a huge transition in her life from going from living in Bermondsey with her mum and having her childhood you know you know if she was here to tell the story which I'm I'm sure she would have done many times hers was a lot harder than than your average yeah so here two kids that have effectively learned a lot of lessons through mistakes as opposed to through good example Mm -hmm. And, you know, what do those two sort of negatives create? I think you had two parents that wanted so badly for our children to have what we didn't. Yeah. And we fought for it and we battled so hard to stay together, to find meaning, to try and find resolution in everything so that we could stay on track, Mm -hmm. stay together. The truth was, is that I think it was, the odds were stacked against us, if not because of, living our relationship out in the in the media. Which, we were constantly in the papers, you know. And the media was different at the time. Yeah. It doesn't seem so harsh these days. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it was it was very intrusive. And again, you know, I'm not one of these that, that like, you know, they, they ruined it for us because, don't get me wrong, it was difficult enough as it was, but it just magnified it, yeah. the fact that there were people so willing to get that information and to publish it. And obviously, as we know now, like they went about getting that information a lot of the time in an illegal way, mm-hmm. which then obviously caused a lot of questions to be asked between Jade and I and our sort of immediate friends. Who's saying this? Yeah. Who's selling this story? And it was who's selling out. It was such a regular thing for us to talk about. 
So, yeah, what, what But how difficult to be going through that thing, the, you know, your own struggles anyway and trying to navigate your way through that and then having this external pressure and all of these eyes and these opinions that have nothing to do with your relationship but are ultimately having an effect. Yeah, and so many layers of mm. difficulty, ultimately, of disadvantage. But yet, you know, there was obviously a lot of privilege in, in our lives at that time. For two young kids who had grown up with not a lot, mm. we, we suddenly sort of found ourselves earning good money. and, and So I can't say that it's all... I, I certainly wouldn't want people to feel sorry for us in, in, in that example. But the one thing I'm sort of not talking about is how difficult it was having a baby. Yeah, um, exactly. And do you know what? Actually, I've used the wrong word because I didn't find it difficult. Didn't you? No, I, I didn't. And, and maybe being a dad and, and having Bobby was some form of distraction from the difficulties in our relationship. Mm -hmm. But I only ever felt really calm, really capable. I used to love carrying him around everywhere, taking him shopping. I remember so many women would sort of be like, oh, you're good, aren't you? Oh, yeah, I hate that. Well, I... Oh, and like, Dad, Tom's got Max today. Yeah. And I made a point of posting about it on Instagram and going, it's not daddy daycare, he's mm. a dad. He's a dad, yeah. <laughs> he has equal responsibility exactly. over this little life. Exactly. I, I agree with you. At, at the time, I think it did sort of, it did flare up, like, should people be saying that? Mm. Is that almost a, a bit of a, well, an insult? But I also understood, yes, yeah, it's, it's obviously 15 years ago, yeah. but but also the fact that they're saying that in relation to their experiences yeah, of, exactly. of, of dads and brothers and uncles and yeah. stuff. So I didn't really take a great deal of offence. Yeah. not necessarily my style to do so. But I just remember that being a dad equaled pride. Yeah. You know? And, yeah, and I, I've, I enjoyed it from the word go, to be honest. Sleepless nights? And then, yeah, yeah, we would have had to have got... But to be honest, both of them have slept incredibly well really? throughout the whole of their... I remember, um, I remember we'd, we'd split by this time and I think the boys obviously stayed with me in my bed when they were maybe a little bit older and um, and I remember one of them, actually, I think it was Freddie, <laughs> he fell off the bed, which would have been maybe two or three foot, yeah. you know, standard sort of double bed height. And I, I just remember waking up in the morning and being like, oh my God, one of my kids has disappeared. <laughs> But I, I looked on the floor and, and he was just laying there on the carpet without any sheets or anything because he'd just got on with it. Yeah. And um, he, he's such a log, as as am I, mm. that that's when you just think, right, well, these, these kids, are they're, they're going to sleep through the whole childhood, no yeah. problem. So I got away with that one, actually. I don't remember that being particularly difficult. Was it a very difficult decision deciding to end your relationship? Because when kids are involved as well, you know, and, you, and you're both kind of fighting for this happy family life that you know you both wanted was it a difficult decision to kind of go actually we're better apart I, I think we both probably suspected it we might not have wanted to have admitted it mm. and there's this element of guilt that we both would have felt over oh I'm now the person who is ultimately deciding that Bobby's not going to have what we didn't have yeah. you know so we're going to end that fairy tale if you like of delivering what we what we didn't experience I think as time went by, again, it just become more and more and more obvious to both of us that we were fighting a, a losing battle. Mm. And actually, it was probably starting to really affect our both of our mental health. I don't think that I was close to a breakdown as such, but I don't know. There's, there's layers to it. There's a mm. scale, isn't there? I don't know how far along the scale I was, but I just know that I was really stressed and I felt helpless. Helpless is exactly the word, actually, because... 
when I met Jade, I saw a side that nobody else had the benefit of seeing while she was obviously on telly and Big Brother and it was the last thing that she actually wanted to show people mm. because that was her vulnerability. But yeah. she gave me the right to see it and it was beautiful and she was, you know, an in- incredible person for all her experience. And I got it. I got the fact that she'd had such a difficult mm. childhood that she wasn't always going to be easy to be with and I accepted that. But, yeah, I think it just got to a point where I knew that I was powerless to help her yeah. because she had to find that herself. If she was ready to look back into her past and try and make sense of it all so that she could be the best version of herself every minute of the day as opposed to just switching it on and off when it felt safe to do so. Mm-hmm. Safe's the word, really. How old were the boys when you decided to separate? Freddie was still a baby, actually, because Freddie caught the last train, so to speak. We had split, actually, and next thing you know, I'm getting a phone call from her. She was meant to be on a TV programme. There was another sort of Big Brother-style reality show that she'd gone on. Yeah, she called me, basically, and she's the last person that I expected to hear from Mm. and said she's pregnant again. So, again, you go this whole cycle about... And it's mad because I there was a lot of relief for both of us probably, the fact that we had sort of accepted it. Yeah. The dust hadn't necessarily settled as such, but, you know, then you go through the cycle of, well, what right have I got? But what right has Bobby got been here if Freddie's going to be denied <laughs> the, the, the yeah. chance? So, I mean, that that could have obviously gone on forever. And at a point, I think you would have just said, well, this is silly now. We need to look at how we're dealing with our contraception <laughs> because it seemed like yeah. that that was the issue. But obviously grudge it for a second because I've got two incredible kids. So were you ever ever together when Freddie came along or were you completely separate? Yeah, no, we, we was like, right, ding, ding, round two. Yeah, let's, okay. uh, let's have another go. And, you know, you'd put your positive spin on it. But it wasn't really any different. And, and it just sort of compounded the fact that we we were not right for each other and we weren't particularly good at handling the stresses of of what our reality was at the time. And being a parent is hard. Even now, for me getting up in the night, there is a hint of resentment looking at Tom when he's asleep. You know, there's always that juggling act of who's doing what and and trying to bring up these children who are completely, you know, they're unpredictable. You know, you don't know what you're going to get at any given moment. And, and so there's so many variables mm. anyway in your life. And... To not have that mm. stable foundation yeah. must make I, it really hard. I, I love that we're talking about this because it's making me sort of realise things. But if I was to really focus on how we were as parents mm. when we were together and, and also when we weren't together, yeah. that was the easy bit. Really? Yeah. Maybe if we were very stable, then we would have sort of been able to say, oh, yeah, that was difficult and that was... But mm. actually, maybe because everything else was so rocky, actually... The parenting bit seemed easy Mm. because actually we were enjoying it so much. It was unconditional love, whereas love had been unkind to us, I think, before that, you know, from our parents. You know, speaking personally for me, not ever having met or known my real dad and the lack of or the loss of identity that would take place when you don't have that clear example of who you are and where you're from in front of you on a daily mm. basis and for for jade obviously her parents had their issues with drugs and god knows what else so actually for us to be able to just love a child unconditionally was like loving ourselves and yeah. uh, and it was saying very natural for both of us uh, so actually that's where it was easy <laughs> 
Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 10 years ago, Jade got diagnosed with cervical cancer. Were you told before she told the boys? Like, how how did that conversation happen? It worked out in a way that we were obviously not together at the time. We hadn't been for maybe two or three years at that Mm -hmm. point. She did ring me. She sort of said that uh, she had cancer. And and at that point, I didn't immediately think she's not going to be here because I had such faith and conviction in the fact that if anyone was ever going to beat cancer it Mm. would be jade just simply because she didn't mess around if she wanted something she went and got it yeah and yeah just cancer doesn't really play by those rules clearly but nothing was said to the boys at the time i I guess it wasn't until her health deteriorated further that because it was physically apparent to the boys that it was then that we had to sort of introduce the fact that mummy wasn't wasn't well 
and obviously with the hospital visits, it then meant that she needed to kind of escalate that. And that's that's what we did actually the whole way through when it took a step in whichever direction. But, you know, obviously it was always a term for the worse. Mm. We kind of had to give them an explanation that a four and a five-year-old would understand because otherwise our concern was that they'll basically make up their own minds as to what's going on. It'll probably create more fear because I think a lot of the time assumption is probably more harmful than than facts, even Mm. though facts are rubbish. And you must have been worried as well because sort of people outside knew stuff. They were both in school. Were you worried about their school friends saying stuff or them hearing anything? Uh, no, I think because we had given them what we felt was enough information, mm-hmm. um, it meant if anybody mentioned something, it's gone. Bear in mind, they're four and five. If a kid in in school, one of their friends sort of says, "Has your mummy got cancer?" And actually, I actually thought it would be good for them to answer that question for themselves in the way that four year olds or five year olds would communicate it. Right. Because me hearing it or knowing that it was said or spoken about would kind of show me where they're at. Mm-hmm. So there's this whole thing in grief, whether it's before the event or after the event, where people don't talk and say how they feel because they don't want to upset their family members. Yeah. And the truth is, is that at that point, as much as we can see each other in the room, it's like everybody's feelings are, are invisible. Mm-hmm. And that is far more harmful than it is for everybody to, to say the, the sad reality, which is I'm really scared or I'm really upset. Because instantly it's like someone turns the light on and right there you are. I know where you are. Your thing as a parent, all you want to say ever, all I ever want to say is, it's fine, don't worry, it'll be okay. It must be really, I'm going to say hard or difficult, but that it's not that word. Mm. Heartbreaking, you know, knowing that you can't use those words. This is something, this is a situation that you can't fix. How do you deal with that? I think, yeah, it defies every instinct that we have in parenting. And as much as those moments where you're delivering that information, especially the last moment where she said, I'm going to be leaving uh, and and going to to, to heaven, just like the hardest conversation that anyone could ever have with their child. Mm. It's it's disgraceful that she had to do that. Not disgraceful because there was another way. There wasn't. That is absolutely the right thing to do because it meant that the kids could... Start processing. The processing of loss is something that is still ongoing from the minute that she said it, 10 years ago, really, to this day, they are still processing. Well, they would have been so moments. young. So, as a four and a five year old hearing those words, mm. although it's terrible that she had to say it, that they would cherish having had that moment and those words from her. You know what I mean? Rather than someone else delivering it, it was something that they went through together. Well, here's a different perspective, G. I think that that strength. Right, to tell the truth and to actually be able to say, not just for their benefit, but for hers as well, because she wouldn't have wanted to say those. Because if you you know, sometimes we don't say certain words because if we say it, it means it's going to happen. Yeah. But she needed to say that for them. It's the most selfless thing that I think I've ever seen anyone do. It gave them a chance to be able to, A, start processing in that particular moment, even though they went off into the playroom and carried on playing like nothing had happened but of course they would react like that it was love it was her loving them enough to say I'm going to say the hardest thing that's ever going to pass my lips and I'm going to say it even though it's going to probably affect me emotionally psychologically it's going to it's going to take me to another stage of where I'm at I'm going to do it for you because we've been telling you the truth throughout and you deserve to know what the truth is now because soon it's going to become a reality 
even though you weren't together at that moment, were you very much together in the way that you communicated everything with the kids? Of course, we're, we're a team. Do you know what? It, an interesting perspective, but six six months she was ill for. And when she knew that she had cancer, all of a sudden, all of the silliness that sometimes goes on between co-parents that are mm-hmm. not together just completely evaporated. And it was like we went back to the beginning without the romance and yeah. whatever else, but just we had the ability to communicate the respect that had always been there, really. And obviously a big part of that was that she got worse a lot quicker. How long after that did she pass away? Uh, a week or two. Really? So it was very soon after that. Did you decide that that would be their last time seeing Jade or...? We didn't know. No. We yeah. didn't have a timer. Um, but I was doing the X Factor tour at the time, obviously not singing. And we were off around the UK. So I think I remember us that day, we got a cab and we went up to Glasgow, I think. And I th- Actually, do you know what I say a week, two weeks? I think it was even less than that. Yeah. I think she knew that she was sort of imminent. But we went off and the X Factor tour was great because it was like a little bubble. Yeah. We was in a little cocoon. Mm-hmm. We just sort of turned up at arenas, did our thing and then went off to hotels or we was on a bus and it kind of kept us safe. If you like, gave me a purpose and a direction for that very difficult sort of period of time. Because I think if we were at home, you'd you'd have a lot of people coming round and wanting to wanting to help out. But I think in that moment, all we really needed was each other. Mm-hmm. So you I were just, all together. You had the boys with you. Yeah, I just I had the boys from the minute she knew she had cancer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no, I remember waking up one morning. Actually, I I knew strangely that that was what was going to happen that I was going to wake up to a text and I, and I did you know woke up to some missed calls and uh, and yeah we flew straight back and my only real responsibility at that time was to tell the boys that it had happened and that mum had gone off to heaven and that the, whatever story we had told them I needed to make sure and this was a real responsibility make sure that it ran seamlessly if you like mm-hmm. that, that it made sense to them that they understood it at the age they were at. I knew that it had to be in an environment where they were going to be comfortable. I didn't want to do it in in the moment when we're at the airport or anything because I didn't know what was going to happen, what was going to follow emotionally yeah. for them. But we got home and I thought, I'm going to wait until it's later in the evening when they're settled, they're ready for bed, they've got their jammers on. And then I was in the living room with the boys and I just opened the back doors and I thought, I'm going to just get some fresh air have a think about it, try and work out tactically like how I'm going to deliver this news. And I, and I went out there was one very bright star in the sky which she'd said that I'm going to be a star and I'm going to go up to heaven. And she made it easy for me. So boys, come and have a little look at it. And they understood. I didn't really need to tell them. Yeah, yeah they knew what it meant. There must have been times following that where... They kind of queried it. Were there ever times where they asked where their mummy was? They knew what it meant. They just knew. And I've heard you talking about grief. So obviously you've written a book about grief. You've got your own grief to deal with. But all grief for Jade and surely grief for the boys, surely a, a huge part of your own grief is for the boys. I hadn't been with Jade for three years, so I wasn't entirely sure that I, how I should be feeling. I don't remember really thinking anything other than what I should be doing is looking after these kids. So I remember taking them straight to Australia. Not that Australia was the plan. It was just instinctive. It was me running away from 
the bedlam that was taking place and the reality of the situation and just getting my babies to a safe place where we could spend a couple of weeks just honestly just taking stock. And for me, it was about I need to see what happens here. What do the kids do? What do they flip out? Do they completely lose it? And in some respects, I remember feeling like it's almost like they're far less affected than I expected them to be. And obviously that's when I taught me about a delayed response, mm-hmm. which is really common, probably more so with kids as well. I remember just thinking, right, what I'm going to do is try and get them to talk about just so I can, again, I can see emotionally where they're at. I remember a kid coming up to him in the swimming pool saying, you're with your dad, like, where's your mum? Because they saw us every day and it was just the three of us and like this is our new reality. And I remember thinking, I'm going to let them answer. And I remember Bobby saying, my mum's in heaven. <laughs> it's hard to talk about it, but you don't want your kids to, to have to grow up so far in advance of the, the, their years. Mm. And they had to. Yeah. I tried to slow that down, but it was too late. It's, you know, losing your mum at that age in your life it made them have to had to really face up to what their reality was at the time. And, you know, your childhood shouldn't really be about that. Yeah, and again, do, have I failed my children because they're experiencing that? And, and, no. And no, yeah, exactly, no. But you will ask yourself that question. I guarantee you that the many surviving parents, if you like, will sort of um, feel guilty about the fact that they're the one that's here and, mm. and the other isn't. But, yeah, I just saw it as, right, I've got a really really clear responsibility here and I need to try and I think actually the way I used to term it was probably wrong I used to say I'm going to try and get these kids through their child as unscathed as I possibly can and those were the words that made sense to me at the time but but actually I'd sort of revise that and say that my job was ultimately just to offer my my ability to listen as as much as possible and try and catch them when they needed me to do so and to try and be as patient and as understanding as I can be when, you know, they'll be maybe acting up and being naughty and I need to have the patience to know that whilst kids are more than capable of being naughty, whether they're bereaved or not, I I needed to make sure that after whatever boundaries I put in place, I gave them the opportunity to talk about the reason for the behaviour and the reason why they might be upset, knowing that a lot of the time it's probably going to be about about mum. Mm. But not making it always about mum, not making that assumption that, oh, you know, he's only doing that at school because he's lost his mum. Bit of a tightrope, to be honest, G. There's a a lot of things to get your head round and there's a lot of balance to be had. And I've obviously got better at it as the years have gone by, but then teenage years bring their own challenges. And But I like to think we're in the best place possible now because I think that they've been able to communicate their grief so well and so often that they have found the answers to their questions. How do you go about including Jade in your lives? Uh, well, the difficulty is, is when they're becoming teenagers, I think that they are naturally wanting to share less of themselves with you anyway, right. whether that's about their grief or whether that's about the fact that they've got a girlfriend that they're keeping quiet or, you know, that's that's just what happens. So so it's, it's hard, whereas before there's never been any resistance, really. If I said, right, we're going to go out and we're going to go bowling and we're going to we're gonna do it for mum and we're going to talk about mum while we're there, yeah. then there'd always be sort of, yeah, okay, no problem. You're doing something they enjoy and we're, we're attaching something we enjoy with mum, which is, a you know, a good way to anchor good feelings mm-hmm. ultimately. But nowadays, actually, I find it harder. Maybe not because their grief has got worse, just because their ability to express their grief has 
got complicated all of a sudden. So me saying, right, we're going to go out and we're going to do something for mum, they might be like, oh... And it might not that be... That must be... be really difficult for you if there is a bit like, oh, do we have to? You know what I mean? It's Yeah, because I mean, you'd forever sort of think to yourself, am I letting Jade down? It's good to ask those questions, actually, because it can provide motivation where motivation is needed. But I don't want to let her down. And I promised her that I would never let them forget her. And obviously that's that's impossible, actually. So I know that I'm ahead on that one. But in terms of doing it not just for the boys so that they're continuously sort of releasing a little bit of the, we talk about grief being like a, a pressure cylinder and if you don't let out a, a little bit of pressure every now and again then you're going to get to dangerous levels and it might even explode one day mm-hmm. so I know that every mention every little conversation that we have or every time that I might even just say oh your mum used to do that I know that that's going to trigger some some thoughts, some memories. They might go away thinking about it for a whole hour. They might go th- away thinking about it for five minutes. But that's that's what I can do. And I, I do it mainly out of uh, respect for her because if I was in her shoes and it was vice versa, you know, I'd feel so grateful, I think, that my kids were still talking about it, whether it was voluntarily or whether it's because I keep chucking one in. The amazing thing is that there is so much out there of Jade and you at that time so they'll always be able to look at videos of their mum and have that, you know, her come alive mm. in a way that isn't just someone else's memory of her. It's a video of her so that they can actually absorb in a, very, in a very different way than just being spoken to about it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, whether it's words from them or video of them. We have watched her living series and that's often the hardest thing for the boys because pictures you can get not immune to Mm. but if you look at the same image over and over again and actually it has less and less of a of a triggering sort of sensation it doesn't take you back to where it used to when you first obviously look at it whereas moving images where the mannerisms and and the voice and the tone and you're hit with all of those things and um if we haven't watched a video of her for a period of time, then it always knocks them sideways. Mm. But not in a, I mean, yes, in a bad way, but not in a bad way because yeah. they have to let that emotion out. Of course, they're upset and they're sad. It's not me making them sad and upset by suggesting that we watch it. It's more often, um, you know, something that's a really useful way of making sure that mummy's kept a topic of conversation mm. and not sort of the last thing I want to do is, is let them suppress and actually, it's in my eldest's nature to to not really be as open as his younger brother. Mm. He expresses it in so many different ways. Like he writes letters, he draws pictures and, you know, you just, again, I know where he is. Mm. So I worry less about Fred, whereas his brother, I'm not really sure. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm never really sure whether he's just been a teenager or whether maybe he's a bit upset about his mum. Mm. So all I can do is lay next to him and make myself available to talk. And just keep suggesting that, well, why don't we go to the grave and just sort of sit there for for half hour after school or something? Yeah. There's no rules to it, but there are absolutely things that, that help and there are things that don't. Generally, the thing that doesn't help is not talking about it, yeah. not suggesting things. I wouldn't really be doing my job, would I? So, mm. But up to a point, they're, you know, they're, they're nearly of an age where they'll have to sort of take responsibility for their grief fully themselves. Mm. Because I can sort of try and steer it and instigate it to an extent, less and less as they get older, actually, because of that that resistance, that intolerance to it. But they'll get to an age where they have to sort of take it on themselves and decide for themselves when they visit the grave independently or when they maybe read one of mum's books or look at some photos. And if they do that independently, then that's when I know that I've done all right. Mm. Mm. 
obviously you became a single dad and 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 you would have you would have been having those sort of separate lives and being a dad on your own anyway were Jade alive because you'd obviously be sharing your parental responsibilities and having had a not very good relationship with your stepdad it must have made you really realize the importance of whatever woman you brought into your lives and how that would affect your children and you know that role of stepmom or whatever woman you brought into the house should have a role and I never linked it a great deal to my stepdad, actually. My relationship with my stepdad was okay because of the football connection. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, usually it was his relationship with my mum that was the the real issue. Yeah. But, you know, he, he didn't treat me or speak to me in, in the same way. So with regards to bringing someone into my life, I've always done well, actually, with girlfriends in that I've had some wonderful ones. Yeah. And I found that my rule was right from the word go that I was going to be with someone for six months dating, whatever you want to call it, until I got to a point where I knew that that person was going to be around for the foreseeable. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, you can never guarantee where it was going to be the one or anything like that. And I never dived in, that's for sure, not before, not after. But that rule really stood me in good stead because it just meant that everybody that I introduced the boys to was around for two, three years, usually three years. I was really good at getting to three years and then it all going, it all going wrong. And that, that was, if I'm being honest, that was a commitment thing for yeah. me, which I've worked very hard on, to mm. be honest. And and I think that I've only really conquered with Kate, who I've obviously married. Yeah. So that's proof, isn't it? But, you know, I remember being with, with one girlfriend and I, I split with her again at the three-year mark. And I remember being really worried about how the boys were going to take it because she was so good with them. Mm. And it was a tough one for me because I knew that through me splitting up, which I felt was right for me, that was was not necessarily good news for the kids. Right. So the boys' reaction surprised me. I told them again, saved it to bedtime, said that that person's not going to be coming around anymore. And I remember them laughing like, and actually finding it funny. And, and one of them said, oh, who dumped who? <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And I, and I wondered whether, again, is this a reflex? Mm-hmm. And then later on, the sort of the questions come. But it didn't. I wouldn't say they weren't bothered, like they're, they're cold and heartless. But what I learned through that is that all they really need is you. Mm-hmm. If they've got you, then it doesn't matter if that girlfriend isn't going to be the one that you're going to marry. You know, they might feel some regret. And Freddie always particularly got close to, closer than Bobby did to the women in my life. Mm. But then it got to Kate and actually with Kate, I had to work harder at making it work as a four than I had to with with anybody else, maybe. Oh, really? Yeah, we worked really, really hard. And yeah, we, we got there eventually. And now it's really amazing to see the relationships and, and how they work and what role she's able to provide the boys because you're right. You know, a big responsibility for me was not just putting the right person in their life, but also, you know, making sure that that person was going to give them what I, I feel they, they need. And we, I think as the parent of the children, mm-hmm. we always kind of really want that person to go to some length, you know, to make sure that they're comfortable, that they know that they're loved. And, and maybe sometimes you have to think about, am I putting too much expectation? Mm-hmm. And But, you know, you again, you do anything for your kids and you just want them to be happy. But as I say, we've got a really good balance. Otherwise, I wouldn't have married her. No. So everything's really good. And I like to think that the boys now feel like they're part of a stable family, maybe for the first time ever. You know, so I'm glad that I delivered on that 
before their childhood expired. And they were your best men. Yeah. What uh, was that like, having them in that role that's got, you know, doing a speech? Well, okay, so I, so your kids, certainly teenagers, they kind of reserve their best behaviour for when they're around other people's houses. <laughs> yeah. And they also don't really show you a great deal emotionally mm-hmm. of how they're feeling. So, so actually, you see the immaturity, the insecurity. You see them trying to sort of push boundaries. But it wasn't until until they started talking, really. And I think Bobby went first, so it's his speech that I'm talking about mainly. Mm. When the maturity, the honesty, the love, the humour just come flooding out. And I was upset anyway, but in a good way. Like yeah. I was crying because I knew I was going to cry. This is my son talking mm. at my wedding. This is special. This is why I say it's more than a wedding, to be honest, because he was delivering this speech. I saw his hand was shaking. Oh. But he was delivering it like he'd done it a million times. Oh. And there he was. He's, you know, six foot one. He's, he's handsome. He's, um, he talks really well. And, yeah, I just remember feeling so blown away by how, how impressive he was. Well, both were. Mm. So it was really confirming. You know, you don't hear your teenage kids speak like that about you unless it's either at a wedding that might be that you're marrying someone else and you've been divorced from their mum or whether it's at your funeral, yeah. not to be morbid, but yeah. actually that's a sobering reality. Mm-hmm. So for me to actually hear them both speak like that was just incredible. They had, we had 130 guests and everybody was was in floods. Well, you spent your whole time as a parent questioning what you're doing and wondering how you're failing them, what you're doing right, if you're getting anything right. So in that moment... You must have felt, I've done a good job. Yeah, it's exactly exactly what happened. Before that, I realised that I'd never given myself permission to tell myself that I'd done a good job, which is really sad, but Mm. been hard on myself. But I always felt like, yeah, you can feel like you've done a great job today, but there's always tomorrow. And Mm. we know that tomorrow could bring something completely different. And I also had this sort of, this strange way of, putting a time on it, like, no, I'm not there yet. No, there's still a few years. Like, there's a finishing line to parenting, and, of right. course, that's ridiculous yeah. as well. You know, maybe I was sort of imagining their school years as being that that finish line, but you, your job's still not done. You're still influential on in their life. Mm-hmm. You're still a big support for them, or at least you should be. But in that actual moment when they were both talking, I just remembered a huge weight lifting off my shoulder, and I'm so much more relaxed since. Really? Not that I was uptight or anything, maybe because of the, the maturity that they're sort of gaining as well. But we're, we're now at a stage where where we're getting on like mates. It's really? A, it's an it's odd development. I can't always be their mate. Like I had to yeah. I had to tell Bobby to clean his room yesterday and, and he didn't really do it. So today I've had to really sort of say, listen, you've, you've really got to do it now. And so so you've still got to be dad. But we went out for a meal the other day and, and we're just sitting there and actually we were just cracking jokes and having a laugh and sort of being able to have a bit of a tease. You know, so it's, so it's nice that we've reached that point. It must feel like you've just gone through something emotional together and it's kind of really solidified actually what you mean to each other. You encapsulate things really nicely, Gia, I've Thanks. got to say, because you're absolutely right. That's exactly how it feels. We've been through a journey together and I like to think that when they're adults, in however many years, we'll all be able to sit there and be so proud of what we achieved as a team, mm. you know, and how, how we supported each other. And it's not just me supporting them. They've supported me as well. 
how we all work together to get ourselves through a very difficult situation and not just get ourselves through it, not just cope. This is another thing that I felt when I was watching them give their speeches. We haven't just done all right. We've actually done really well. Mm. Well, because you don't just want your child to cope. You want them to live their life and thrive and have a life, Mm. not just living in the shadow of something horrible that's happened it's funny but this is this is where um, I, I sort of use a football analogy which might lose a few people but You've uh, lost uh, me. <laughs> some, sometimes at the start of a game you're playing against someone really difficult yeah. you'll take a nil nil draw right at, at the time when when jade died i would have took a nil nil draw all day long but actually i'm finding that we're five nil up I've lost people, haven't I? <laughs> uh, it, it went better you than I expected. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, we're we're winning. We're winning. We really are. Yeah. Mm. At the end of every podcast, at the end of every episode, I give you three sentences to finish. Mm. So, being a dad means? Being a dad means taking responsibility because that's, that's what I've done a lot of. But it's a responsibility that I absolutely embrace firstly it's my job when you have a child that's what you sign up to you don't necessarily predict the future and what's going to happen and some people are dealt very cruel hands yeah my children were but I'm all about taking responsibility for not just coping as we just mm-hmm. said but actually you know what tools can you get from something like that let's make sure that they recognize their resilience and their strength Let's make sure that they're proud of these things so that that's the foundation for them to go and have a really great life as adults. I do not worry about those two as adults. Really? It might be naive of me to say it because uh, everyone's going to make mistakes. There, there's no two ways about it. But in terms of what tools have they got available to them, they've got plenty. And it just makes me feel like I know they're going to be good people. Mm-hmm. But I also know that they're going to go out and hopefully attack life. They're going to go and seize opportunities. They're just going to live, yeah. right? Because if the, I think the most important thing you can ever learn from a death that affects you particularly closely as theirs did is you learn how to live. Yeah. Some people don't. I, I, I've seen that as a, as a coach. You, I speak to a lot of bereaved people and some people are not living because they feel guilty to. Yeah. They feel like they can't anymore because they don't have that person with them. And that's obviously a, a really fair enough a conclusion or a place to arrive at. However, you know, I just I just think that life is so precious and if death doesn't teach you that uh, and doesn't make you think, well, I'm going to go and live my life to the best of my ability, if not for you, but for that person, mm-hmm. dedicated to them. That's what I hope they're going to do. Yeah. Since having children, I... Oh, since having children, I've had to change. <laughs> really? Yeah. Really? From this 20-something-year-old just going off on your PAs and having fun in Dukes, you've had yeah. to change? Yeah, I did. So to an extent, while Jade was with us, and then after that, even more so. Yeah. I, I've had to become very safe, very reliable, and very responsible. Is that word again? Mm-hmm. Because they're getting older... And because I gave myself permission to pat myself on the back at that wedding, I'm now starting to relax a bit. And I can see, again, not the light at the end of the tunnel, but I can see that somewhere in the near distance is the opportunity for me to start rediscovering who I am. Because I'm a version of myself. I'm the version of myself that I needed to be to to cope with what we've been dealt with yeah. for the last 10 years. That's not all of me. No, There's loads more. So even little things, and I'll give you an example, because uh, 
parents will be listening saying, yeah, I've become mum. Yeah. You know, I think you have to always sort of be aware of what else you are. Mm. And if you haven't got another hat, then let's go and knit one yeah. and wear it as much as possible. But so I worked for BT Sport doing the football mm-hmm. on a Saturday and I was up covering Wrexham, which is North Wales. Very near to Wrexham is, is Snowdon. Yeah. So I've always wanted to be a little bit more outdoorsy. But I've always told myself, well, I can't. I can't do those sort of things because the kids don't want to walk up a mountain. <laughs> you know. And also, actually, more to the point, I can't be missing for half of Sunday because mm. that's really a day that I should be. But the point is they're of an age where they need me less and, in fact, they just want to be with their mates. Yeah. So I can get away with that now. And I did. I, I went and climbed Snowden with, with a friend. We started very early and then we got to the top. And it was such a... So amazingly liberating to be sort of making that choice and by giving it to myself, that experience, that time, that time for me, and it feels really good and I'm getting excited about what I'm going to do moving forwards. But there's questions like these that you're asking. It's really good because you you learn something about yourself. Yeah. Well, my last sentence is, I'm happy when? I'm happy when I open my eyes in the morning. Again, my whole mantra is I'm lucky to be here. So let's just start with that. Secondly, I've got two incredible kids that make me proud on a minutely basis. Mm. I've got an amazing wife. I Most of my work, I can't really call work because mm-hmm. I really enjoy it. And I'm really positive. And I know that I have a good impact on other people, whether it's through coaching or just you know, the people that I do CrossFit with. I'm always encouraging. I'm always there to support people. And yeah, every day just feels like it's a good day. Well, it's been a good day today. Mm. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to talk. <laughs>